Well, and there's also something that, you know, to the idea that we also started packaging Christianity as a product to be consumed. That's true. And when you do that, we want it to be as simple and as efficient as we can. And so belief is a really simple thing, right? It's much harder to talk about, are we loving people well? Are we being wise? And like that gets muddy and murky and two steps forward and one step back. But if I can pitch you toward this package that, well, all you have to do is say this prayer and believe it in your head. Mm -hmm. Like we're going to convert a lot more people that way. Hello, my friends. Welcome. Welcome back to another episode. Episode number 150 of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I am your host. And uh, thank you. Thanks for joining me on the ride today. Uh, 150 episodes. I, I, I did not think that I would ever land on 150 episodes episodes if i'm being honest with you uh it's it's crazy i mean i was talking to my wife the other day and it's like 150 episodes in a row like they go out every monday there's been a couple weeks for like easter christmas where we've done uh like more than one episode in a week like last year for easter we did We did Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. We did one Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. So we did a whole bunch of episodes. But for the most part, we're talking like 140, 45 weeks in a row that we've put out an episode. And I feel like that's that's an accomplishment. And I feel like they've been they've been good. Like I can't think of any episode that I ever like mailed it in, like just to get an episode done. Like they've all been really thought out. I feel like really well prepared. Um, I try to bring the same mentality to, I'm reflecting. Welcome to my reflection on 150 episodes, but I try to bring in like the same kind of mentality to preparing a podcast episode that I would bring to like preparing a sermon or preparing for an exam in seminary or preparing to write a paper in seminary. Like I, I try to really pour myself into every episode, right? So like typically I either do, I either do an interview with somebody or sometimes I'll do a solo episode. So a solo episode is, is like a sermon really, because I'll have a topic or maybe a passage from the Bible I want to explore and I'll just pour myself into it as I would preparing for a sermon because I'm delivering this message in front of a microphone instead of behind a pulpit. Same idea. Uh, same kind of effort. And then, you know, for an interview, typically the person's written a book or if they haven't written a book, uh, they're really sharp on a certain topic. And so I'll read up on that topic. I'll read their book, whatever. 
if they have more than one book, I try to read as many as I can. Like in a couple weeks, I'm talking to Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman is like a, like a walking encyclopedia. He's like a walking library. And he has written like a library of books. And so I literally have on my shelf right here, uh, Lost Christianities by Bart Ehrman, The Other Gospels by Bart Ehrman, a book called Forged by Bart Ehrman. Um, I have a book called Paul, uh, Peter, and Mary Magdalene by Bart Ehrman, Jesus Before the Gospels by Bart Ehrman. I have so many Bart Ehrman books on my desk because I'm trying to gather as much information uh, as I can that he's written about so I can have things to pull from when I ask him my questions. And so what I'm saying is that there's so much thought that goes into all of this, but I, I love it. And I really wanted to say thank you to all of you because a lot of you guys listen every week. Like I can tell there's a core group of people that listen because downloads always fluctuate depending on the, I don't know, depending on the guest. Like if you have a big name guest like a Diana Butler Bass or um, like an N.T. Wright or somebody like that, the downloads always spike for those because people search that person on podcast app and you know the episode pops up and boom, they're going to listen to it. But there's a core group of people and I can tell listen every single week. And I want to say thank you to you uh, because you, you give me the encouragement, the inspiration to keep on going. Like when I started this thing, I thought maybe it would last a month. I thought maybe it would last two months. I thought maybe, I don't know, maybe like six months. I don't, I don't know. I didn't think it was going to last like this long. And here we are. I mean, three years later, 150 episodes in, and we're just still going. Uh, A lot of you guys reach out to me on a regular basis to encourage me. Uh, You you tell me that you listen to certain episodes. They really helped you. They really struck you. A bunch of you support on Patreon, uh, buy me a coffee, uh, all the different places. And I, I thank you. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed with the the care and the encouragement that you as listeners put forth towards me and to my family. A lot of you reach out to my wife on social media to encourage her. It's just, it's so, it's so wonderful. And there's even a core group of listeners, a core group of the core group who are part of like our Facebook group, who are part of a smaller Marco Polo uh, group of about 25 people in there, I think, who share videos back and forth throughout the day, people who are in Canada, people in the UK, people in various parts of the US. And it's almost like a church. It almost feels very churchy because we have relationships. We're connected. We know a little bit about each other's lives. Um, we share stuff. We We share about what we're having for dinner. We share about uh, different things going on in our lives. We know, you know, our kids' names. Like it's just, it's so wonderful. And who would have thought? I mean, my dissertation in school was kind of about how this can work, how technology can be used to build relationships. But it's so cool. Like it's one thing to research it and write about it. It's another thing to actually see it unfold and work before my very eyes. Um, Some of the people who I feel closest to 
in regards to this podcast are people who I, I've never felt close, as close to these. I've never felt, what am I trying to say? I've never felt as close to somebody in a church as I feel to some of the listeners of this podcast. And that's saying something. That's huge. We're doing something fun, something good, something something earth-shattering here. As we say at Apple, I work at Apple, we're making a dent in the universe, and that's what it's all about. Uh, the What If Project, if this is your first time listening, uh, welcome. I don't usually start off with this long of a random monologue with no notes in front of me at all. I'm just kind of talking to you. Uh, but the What If Project is a place where we explore that question of what if, what if, what if there are ways of thinking about God and faith and spirituality and the Bible and Christianity and the church and all the things that are different, much different than the ways in which we've been, we've been raised, uh, than the ways in which our traditions have handed to us. So we question things. We ask a lot of questions. We have very little periods and exclamation points, lots of question marks. Uh, questions about hell, questions about heaven, questions about salvation, questions about the Bible, questions about Jesus, the cross, the atonement, LGBTQ people, all different sorts of things, social justice. We ask lots of questions. A lot of us know what we've been taught about these things, but what if those are not the only ways to think about them? And we bring on different guests to talk about different things, uh, regarding areas of their own expertise, and we have a whole lot of fun doing it and building this fun community along the way. I often say that the What If Project is a lifeboat that is traveling behind uh, the cruise ship of evangelical Christianity, and it's catching people who have fallen off, jumped off, or in some cases were thrown off by people aboard the ship because they have too many questions, too many doubts, they aren't willing to sign on the dotted line in regards to theologies and doctrines and, and things like that. So all of that to say, my friends, I'm not going to go into all the details uh, about Patreon, Buy Me Coffee. It's all in the show notes. Go check it out. Uh, today's episode is with my friend Jared Bias. Uh, what, a, what a guy to bring on for episode number 150. Uh, I knew Jared. I talked to Jared. I mentioned this in the episode uh, before the podcast actually started. I met him at the Wild Goose Festival. He was getting ready to do a live recording of the Bible for Normal People that he's on with Pete Enns. And I told him, I have this idea for a podcast, but I don't know, Jared, like, I don't know if it's going to work. I don't, I don't know. And there's just another guy with a podcast. There's so many podcasts out there. He listened to my idea. I kind of pitched him the idea of the lifeboat thing. He's like, Dad, he's like, man, that's good. He said, you should, you should do it. And so I did. Uh, it took me a little while to get everything together to kind of take care of the nuts and bolts and cross the T's and dot the I's and all that kind of stuff. But I got it up and running and started with the first episode. And here we are, 150 episodes in. And uh, Jared joins me on the show today to reminisce a little bit about that and also to talk to us about his book, uh, Love Matters More. And so I will put the link to all the things, including his book, uh, in the show notes. Special music today is by my friend uh, Derek Webb. Uh, Derek used to be a uh, one of the, the lead people in a very prominent Christian band. Go Google Derek Webb and you'll see 
all about it, but he's doing his own thing now, making his own music. So I'll put the links to his stuff in the show notes. Go download it and uh, show him some love. But all of that to say, this is episode number 150. Let the balloons and streamers drop from the ceiling. And it's my conversation with Jared Baez. Let's roll the tape. Enjoy. everybody. Today we're sitting down with my friend Jared Baez, who recently wrote a book called Love Matters More. So Jared, welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's an honor to connect with you. Absolutely. Same here. And given that you help post the Bible for normal people, I feel like I'm in the presence of greatness, I guess. Is my podcast uh, now ordained just like yours? No, it is It is not. Um, no, it I don't know if you know, you know Seth Price over at, uh, can I yes. say this, at church. Yeah. Uh, we have a, we've talked about getting him a punch card. So there, it takes, <laughs> it takes many visits from Pete or myself. And, and I think it's once you get 10, you get ordained. Wow. Um, it's kind of like but, a, you know, getting a free sub sandwich. <laughs> exactly. But you know, we don't make the rules. It's really, rules. you know, we, we receive those from God and we just are messengers, you know, it's coded in the Bible somewhere. I'm sure it's, this is true. It's true. <laughs> so before we jump in, I want to say really a public thank you. Uh, you and I first connected at the Wild Goose Festival mm-hmm. uh, like 150 episodes ago for me uh, when the podcast was just kind of brewing in my in my brain. And I remember we were sitting together. It was super hot and muggy. And it was right before you and Pete, I think, were going to record one of your episodes. And I gave you this brief pitch for this podcast. And you told me to go for it. And honestly, like hearing that from you, somebody who I've learned an immense amount from and listening to over the years, it really meant the world to me and gave me the courage to jump into this arena. So I just wanted to say thank you publicly. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for adding your voice. I think the more we can have this conversation, the better. Thank you. So before we get into the book, maybe for our listeners who aren't too familiar with who you are, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in in, uh, Texas and am a transplant here to near the Philadelphia area mm-hmm. and um, kind of that that journey tracks with sort of my spiritual journey and uh, wanted to be a professor of presuppositional apologetics since I was a young teenager as mm-hmm. you know most young boys my age wanted to <laughs> right and uh, which is really about arguing about Christianity and defending Christianity so from a young mm-hmm. age that's kind of what I wanted to do and by the time uh, I went to Liberty to get a, I got a degree in philosophy to help me, you know, argue well, yeah. and then uh, went to Westminster Seminary, which is where I'd always wanted to go. And uh, there, things started unraveling for me, and and in a really good way, mm. uh, changed trajectories to biblical studies. Became fascinated by that, and finished out my studies there, and then mm. uh, taught biblical studies and uh, and philosophy ethics at a university and did that for a while and then you know started the bible for normal people with pete and here we are here we are did you read like when you were a kid and you were into apologetics like what what were you reading 
I was reading, interestingly enough, I just found my box of apologetic books that have been in an attic <laughs> yep. of an, an old house for the last five years, and I just got them last weekend, so this is fresh on my mind. But <laughs> I read, a, you know, for me, it was about that school of presuppositionalism, which would have been Cornelius Van Til, Greg mm -hmm. Bonson, um, these folks. So, uh, of course, I read some of the others as well, William Lane Craig and that group but that's not really where my wheelhouse was i read uh josh mcdowell when i was a teenager that was oh my yeah big book was it evidence that demands a verdict i think it mm -hmm. was you yeah. know i had a bible teacher i went to a private christian school and we were talking he was talking about apologetics and i got introduced to the idea like the concept and then this book and i was i devoured this book like i was reading it every single night i was like obsessed with it um, but i think it's funny because i think a lot of people that i've come across who are kind of in that world of deconstruction they started in that place are really well, wanting to yeah, defend yeah well yeah i think those of us who maybe took it very seriously yeah are those who kind of come to the to the limitations of it quicker yes exactly so your book uh is called a love matters more and the subtitle is how fighting to be right keeps us from loving like jesus i'm wondering what made you want to write on this topic did it have to do with your early obsession with apologetics that kind of bleed it all into wanting to write this book? Well, this book started about eight years ago and it was originally a mm. book about truth. You know, I was teaching philosophy and I thought it'd be good for people to kind of understand what truth is about. Sure. And then in conversations with the publisher and just in my own journey, it was like, no, this is actually a book about love. This mm. isn't really a book about truth. And mm. then I started really getting interested in that relationship between truth and love. And it just did dovetail so nicely uh, with my with my story, kind of my failings and fumblings in this area. Did you say you start eight years ago? You said, yeah, when I was a pastor is when okay. I kind of started the just the seedlings. You know, I had a file gotcha. locked away on my computer somewhere. <laughs> file that you built over the years. <laughs> yeah. So for those of us who are deconstructing, rethinking things, I think we've all had that verse: speak the truth in love. Uh, weaponized against us in some way, or we've been the one who has weaponized it against somebody else. And I know for me, uh, like back in my evangelical days, that verse was kind of like uh, my license, I guess, to judge someone and their life or their theology as harshly as I wanted to. And use the Bible as my justification. But I think a good place to start might be for our listeners who are for, more familiar with those words, you know, what does that verse actually mean? Because it comes from Ephesians uh, 4 or 3, I believe. So maybe written by Paul, maybe not, but whatever the case may be, what, what is this phrase taken from a larger verse, larger chapter, larger letter? Like, what is it referring to? It really is re referring to, to speaking the truth, although we have to recognize as in general, everything comes in a context. And mm -hmm. so, yep. you know, the first thing I wanted to do was look back into the Bible and say, okay, but what does truth mean in the Bible? And how do we not put into it our own, uh, you know, our own biases and our own concepts of yeah. truth? And interestingly enough, when I looked through the Bible and, in you know, being nerdy as I did, I wrote every instance <laughs> down and I wrote, you know, the, the Greek and Hebrew behind them and all that stuff. And sure. it became very clear to me that what we usually mean by truth, which is this mental a belief in an, uh, some abstract concept. So... Do you believe in the truth or mm -hmm. this is the truth that actually almost never, almost never. I only found one or two instances and they are in the very uh, sketchy books of, you know, the, of the Bible that may very likely not written by Paul, but anyway, that's a different sure. story. Right. Um, <laughs> <That's> another podcast, <laughs> almost never like one or two instances, yeah. overwhelmingly 
truth is a relational and ethical term. Mm. It's in the context of being faithful, of being loyal, of being a trustworthy person. And that was a a big light bulb for me and something Mm. I was surprised at. Um, So whatever we mean by the truth in Ephesians 4, we have to not put our modern baggage onto it. Um, So like an intellectual, an intellectual thing, right? Yeah, right. Well, yeah, Yeah. it's a disembodied obsession we have in the modern world with uh, abstract facts. Hmm. And in evangelicalism bought that hook, line and sinker that the most important thing in the book of Jonah is that that we could we believe the fact that God could have a giant whale actually swallow a man like that was the most important thing. Because we had kind of bought into this idea. We were trying to catch up to the scientists and everything, and we had a chip on our shoulder. Hmm. And so we sort of adopted a framework that, frankly, I don't think helpful. Yeah. So then what is like, you know, it's like, what, what then is, what are some examples of truth? Maybe give us some like concrete examples. Like if truth is beyond something that's just this intellectual piece of doctrine or theology that we say yes or no to, like what, what is truth? Like give us some examples. Well, in the book, I break it down into three categories because I think mm-hmm. we're we're kind of ships passing in the night when we talk about truth sometimes. <laughs> sure. um, so there's the idea of facts. That's mm-hmm. part of it. We can call that like fact truths. But then there's meaning. Yeah. And that's important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, facts are what exists out there independent of humans. Meaning has to have a human element. There is no meaning without humans. Mm-hmm. And so we can talk about what it means to me. And mm-hmm. that can be true or that can be a truth just as much as the facts. And then there's this wisdom element, which is a relational, how do we navigate the world in a true way? Mm. It's almost like truth as an adverb rather than truth as an adjective, Mm. right? Um, And so that's really important because when I look at how truth is used in the Bible, it's almost used in this adverbial sense of being Mm. a faithful or trustworthy person. Mm. And and so we just have to be clear. I think those are all true senses of the word truth. But when I say... You know, the the book of Jonah, to pick on Jonah again, <laughs> is true. Yeah. I mean that it resonates in my soul to see the descent of Jonah in an existential crisis as he runs away from God and gets shut out of creation yeah. in this mythopoetic sense. Yeah. That is deeply true to me because mm. it's meaningful in yeah. my life. Yeah. I don't mean it's true in the sense that it historically happened, but those so- are both valid. Yeah. So I guess then like it's, it would be helpful then like if you're in a conversation with somebody in particular online where a lot of these conversations do happen is to kind of maybe set the groundwork in your own mind beforehand as to exactly what you mean by truth when you enter this conversation. Because I think like so many times we go into a conversation arguing about the truth, thinking we're talking about these factual things when in reality, we might be talking about what the truth is for me, like you said, meaning or for wisdom, what the greater truth is in the world. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I, in, in fact, through writing this book and things, I try not to use the word truth. I'd rather yeah. use the words facts or meaningfulness or, um, you know, what's wise mm. rather than saying what's true, because I yeah. think there's just a lot of ambiguity. So I grew up in a, as I said before, a private Christian school, uh, went to Bible college, seminary, all very conservative. And it always felt like the and like the goal of being a Christian was to be certain, you know, like we talked about um, before about like the apologetics books and stuff like that, to be right about God and faith and to be able to argue your point and things like that. And if you weren't certain, it was because you didn't have enough faith. And if you didn't have an answer, you know, you weren't 
a very good Christian because you weren't, you know, prepared to give an answer. I think it says in first Peter or something like that, but the goal is to be right, you know, to have an answer to be certain. But in the book, you kind of suggest that uh, perhaps the question we need to ask ourselves as Christians isn't, do I have the right answer? Am I right? Or how do I prove this person wrong? But you have this phrase, you say, am I right? Am I right now living a nuanced life of love patterned after Jesus? And so I guess my question is like, if that's the question we have to be asking ourselves, how in the world did we stray so far off the track? Because like, why does it feel like, you know, more Christians than not want to like lop off my head because of an episode that maybe they don't agree with or is out of their box or something like that, as opposed to like dialoguing about it and learning from each other. Like when did that inclination in history, like when did that shift happen? I do think there is something to the modern world, right? So when we're looking at history, yeah, I think there's something to the Renaissance through the Enlightenment hmm. that contributed to this because we started to use reason. Reason became a really big thing of like, yeah. hey, we can use this to, you know, build practical things. Like yeah. we can understand the world through scientific discoveries. And, and so I think that's where the Western world started mm. to put more and more emphasis on the facts we can know about the world through, yeah. through the scientific process. Mm. And again, I think the, I think Christianity and in particular evangelicalism started to become a reaction to that. Hmm. where we had a chip on our shoulder again and it was like well we can prove our facts and so hmm. then it got to be tension because when you apply the scientific method to things like history and uh, archaeology and medicine and technology we start to come out with some answers that maybe don't jive with what the bible's assumptions are about hmm. those things mm -hmm. um, so then we then i think we get defensive Hmm. And we start needing to defend our our own way of thinking over against this, you know, scientific way of thinking or um, something like that. But I think that's the historical answer. The more interesting part of that for me is the into you know our own makeup as people and hmm. what leads us today to yeah. emphasize this. And I just think we have to talk about fear. And I think there's just so much fear that happens in certain uh, traditions. In America. Hmm. And, you know, that was what it was for me. I had a fear of not being in control. And yeah. I just, I just baptized Christianity. It, if, if I wasn't a Christian, I would have baptized something else that helped me want sure. to be in control because sure. I was terrified of not being yeah. in control. Um, so I hmm. think we have to talk about the fear factor too. Hmm. I think there's fear and there's fear too. And I think in fear and just being, being wrong, right? Like not, there's fear of losing control, but there's fear of of being wrong because it's almost like if you're if you're wrong it's like there's something wrong with you and nobody wants to feel that well yeah. and there's also something that you know to the idea that we also started packaging christianity as a product to be consumed that's true yeah. and when you do that we want it to be as simple and as efficient as we can yeah and so belief is a really simple thing right it's much harder to talk about, are we loving people well? Are we being wise? And like that gets muddy and murky and yeah. two steps forward and one step back. But if I can pitch you toward this package that, well, all you have to do is say this prayer and believe it in your head. Mm -hmm. Like we're going to convert a lot more people that way. Right. It's much easier to get people to come into our entire way of thinking if that's all they have to do. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the book, you have this one section where you talk about uh, an instance with your mom when you were younger. And I was going to read 
I was going to ask you if I could read that part of your book because I thought it was really good. But I, th- I think it's a little bit longer. So I think maybe you could just tell us quickly the story of when your mom, you and your mom had that experience in the kitchen uh, when you came home when you were younger and just kind of what that triggered in you in terms of how you were, th- you know, how you were thinking about what Christianity is, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I thought that was really good. Yeah. You know, um, so the, the summary of that story was yeah. I like to argue <laughs> and my mom was often the course because she cared about me, the the person on the receiving end of that. Right. And so we were arguing one night about predestination. God bless moms. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so patient and gracious. So we were talking about predestination mm-hmm. and uh, I basically counteracted something she said by pointing at her. And mm-hmm. of course, I'm sure being really uh, aggressive and a, a douchebag about it. And <laughs> And it triggered something in her, and she grabbed me by the throat and slammed me against our back door, and we both were just super in shock. It wasn't sort of premeditated, and then after we kind of came down off the emotion of it, um, she, you know, she was able to explain that that was a trigger for her from when she was a kid and something her dad used to do, and um, and that that for me, it was the it put the cracks in my foundation of thinking that if we can just convince each other to be right about the facts of Christianity that that's going to change the world and that's going to change our hearts and that's going to change who we are. And that was the line that was sold to me. Like if you can just believe the right things, your whole life will be transformed. And in that instance, I started to see the, the faulty thinking with that equation. Yeah. I'd say it's, it's gotta be more than just having the right, the right things to say and the right beliefs in your head. Um, I think for me, like that's, that, that rings really true. Like I didn't have any kind of experience like that, but I just think of my, my other life experience is like once I, I grew up in that world where if you have the right beliefs, like everything is just going to work out for you. But like that's life started to happen and things started to happen. That foundation really began to break. And I've told this story in the podcast a lot, but for me, it was when my, my wife and I had a, a miscarriage before our daughter was born and it just totally like wrecked everything about my theology. Like I had the theology that, you know, you just believe all these right things, things are going to work out for you. And if they don't work out, you just have to believe and just have to trust. And for me, like this thing came crashing down on me and it just shattered that whole foundation. And I'm like, it can't just be about believing. It's got to be about something more than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it often is those sort of catalyst moments that are painful at the time, but open us up to a new world of empathy and experience. Yeah. So how do we like move? Like think, think about like the, think about maybe like the church person who's listening. Maybe they're, they're a pastor. Maybe they're some kind of volunteer person on staff at a church and they're listening to this and their church, their congregation is kind of filled with those people. Um, you know, like Brian McLaren just wrote this book, uh, faith, faith after our faith after doubt. And he talks about how there's different stages of faith and how first stage people are kind of just believe the right thing or don't believe the right thing and go to heaven, go to hell. Like that's kind of where they're at. Maybe, maybe there's somebody listening and there's a lot of their church congregation that's in that place. And they're about believing, having the answers. How does somebody begin to move like a larger body of people in a different direction? <laughs> it's like, I feel like coming out, like I'm thinking, <laughs> myself, thinking myself, like when I used to pastor a church, it was a stage one people. And I felt like at that time I was probably in a stage two or stage three, a little bit more down the road, but like, thinking how to get people who are so set to think differently. Like how, what does that look like? 
Yeah, I tend to be someone who thinks we surround with alternatives, not criticize what's wrong. I, I don't know about uh, yeah. a lot of changes that happen when we just tell <laughs> right. people they're dumb and right. they need to change. <laughs> right. But, you know, for me as a pastor, what I started to do was decenter the people who were, quote, good Christians because of everything they knew uh, yeah. and start to center the people who didn't want to be in the spotlight, but were just lovers. They just mm. loved well. Mm. And, and so that's what I started doing personally for myself was like, I need to go after people I respect who can mentor me, not in the art of getting the facts right, yeah. but who can, who can mentor me in waving off all of that theology and saying, what does it matter? Are you loving your neighbor? Yeah. Um, who are asking those kinds of questions. So mm. I think when I think of organizationally, it's how do we decenter the, the well-spoken, articulate, super smart person who can rattle off all the theology and how do we people who how do we highlight and center storytellers and wise people and people who love well and 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 starting to I think highlight those stories could be yeah. a good way to kind of prevent to provide this alternative and also it's a little bit of a positive peer pressure of kind yeah. of saying like yeah this is what we value it changes the culture of our of our church or organization sure and maybe almost giving those people like a, a platform to kind of share their right. stories, whether it be in a Bible study or in a Sunday school class or get up in church and be part of the sermon to kind of, you know, give a, a description of their own experience. Cause that's one of the things I noticed too, is even as a, as a pastor was the congregation often took things better from their own peers, so to speak, as opposed to from somebody who is either on the elder board or from the pastor or something like that. Like if they hear somebody else who sits next to them every Sunday, say something, it tends to trigger things a little bit harder in their brain than if it comes from somebody else. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and one mm -hmm. thing before we go too is I think mm -hmm. looking at your children's curriculum, because that's mm -hmm. huge, right? So for sure. me as a kid, sword drills, memorizing Bible verses, <laughs> right. flashcards, yep. Bible bowl, like these kinds of things are saying the most important thing you can do is to memorize your Bible. Like that's yeah. a cognitive and intellectual pursuit yep. that I would say is not actually that helpful. Yeah. Um, and so how do we build curriculum around learning the stories of Jesus, telling stories of kindness and compassion and love and grace, um, still talking about the relationship between uh, justice and love and how do we navigate that? So having these more nuanced conversations in middle school and high school and having more story time um, and Jesus centered things in, in that elementary age, I think could be go a long way, too. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think about that in the context of my own daughter, because she's going to be four at the end of this month. And just thinking about like, how we talk to her about God, like she she knows she has like her little, you know, children's Bible and stuff like that. We've been I've been very picky about <laughs> what kind of Bible she has, mm -hmm. because uh, listening to like you and Pete talk about, you know, like, you know, the, you know, the ones that are, you know, focused on the old Testament stories with like Noah's Ark. That's really a terrible story. It's not really, it's not really very good at all. You know, so we have like, we've been really picky about like the way that we talk to her about the Bible and about God. And she has this very, you know, focused idea right now that Jesus is her friend and Jesus is always with her. And that's pretty much the extent of what mm -hmm. she understands. And I, I really want to be like, I, I want to be like that, I guess, because of, of my own upbringing. Like I, I feel like I, I'm on extra guard about how somebody's going to talk to her about, about the Bible and things like that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, chapter, chapter four, um, you say that the system of Christianity uh, is built around privileging our intellect. And uh, then you say this, you say, we, have, we would do well to come to a place where we need to listen to people who are marginalized for how they connect with God 
in ways that may be closer to the faith that Jesus and the New Testament espouse than to what has been set up in Christendom over the course of history. So maybe talk to me about that. Like, what does it mean to listen to people who are marginalized for how they connect with God and, and why, why might that be closer to what Jesus was about? Well, again, I think it's, it goes right to the heart of what we've been saying is how, if, if we agree that love matters more Mm -hmm. in this, in this Christian faith, based on the words of Jesus, um, the words, even of Paul, I would say, and certainly Mm -hmm. of the John uh, writers. So if that's the case, then how do we start listening to and acknowledging and recognizing and centering these stories and these people um, and in not dismissing, right? I, and uh, what, what I have in mind there is I have mm-hmm. very particular people in my life, mm-hmm. usually older women mm-hmm. who had been not ignored, but I would actually say had been uh, used for their gifts of, of service and love and, and compassion yeah. to kind of keep the machine going in the church, right? They're the people who yeah. are making the meals for everyone. And, but not, they're never recognized for that. They're, it's not ever seen as like, though this is kind of the heart of what we're talking about here. Yeah. And, and so, you know, giving those, again, I'm thinking particularly of women mm-hmm. place in the church and highlighting this, uh, this component that I think mm-hmm. is so central to what it means to be a Christian and not relegating them to the margins and then exploiting their labor in that. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is the glue that keeps everyone together. And we, we, we give it lip service. We talk about how important it is, but then we're ignoring the very people who are embodying that in our congregation. Yes. Yeah. I was thinking when I read that, I was thinking that because that was my experience when I was a pastor, we, it was a very older, much older church. And we had that group of older women who they did all the potlucks, you know, we had, chilly night once i think once a year we had we divide the whole community and like they did all of that stuff to get all the people in and to your point very rarely got the recognition for it but also i was thinking about children right because children in a sense are marginalized but thinking about my daughter and how she connects with god like it's so innocent like we'll we'll lay in bed at night like while i'm tucking her in and she'll say can you tell me the story of jesus and i tell her the story and she like knows the words the way that i tell it and she no, he's no, Jesus is my friend and Jesus is always with me. I'm never alone. Like, I feel like that's such a simplistic theology that gets overly complicated as, as we grow and we read and we learn. And maybe like, that's what it means to go back to what Jesus was all about. Cause that's really what he, he said, you know, let the little children come to me and, you know, mm-hmm. you have to be like a child to go into the kingdom of God. Like, I feel like that's that seems to be like what he's after. You know? Yeah, there's this uh, a very much apocryphal story, so I'm not even going to try to get the details right. Sure it, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. I don't know. But there's this, I may not. Is even it true or is right. it not true, Jared? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is true and not true, depending right. on what we mean. Um, but you know, there's a story of of the theologian Karl Barth, super smart guy. I mean, wrote just volumes and volumes of theology. Did you know? Did a lot of good for the church and yeah. some other things. Uh, but in, late in his life, um, when he was sort of asked like, well, what's kind of like, how would you summarize all of this work that you've done? Like, what's the most important thing to remember? And he said uh, to the, to the group there, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Yeah. And that kind of always stuck with me huh. that, 
that kind of childlike connection. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, we can get lost in our own ego and our own systems and structures, and we can get down in the weeds about all this stuff that frankly just does not matter. Yeah. Um, and so I think we need to be reminded of that. And, and kids are a great way to do that. Like they, yeah. they, they're not in the weeds and they'll tell you what they think. <laughs> that's for sure. You have kids, right? Yeah. I have four. Mm-hmm. I have four. How old are they? Uh, at this point in time, we're about to hit birthdays. So it okay. will be 13, 11, 10, and six. Got it. So as like, what have you learned just out of curiosity, like as a father from one father to another, like what have you learned about how to talk to your kids about God as they grow? Because that's a, a large age range. Like what do, like, what do conversations look like with your kids? I mean, like, how do you help foster that? sense of innocence where like you said is you know they don't get caught up in the weeds of all of the big like yeah. questions and theology what does that what does that look like in your in your home i think two things come to mind first is the humility mm. so when we talk about it i'm my wife and i both are always very careful to say well this is you know this is what we believe but lots of other people believe differently like other yeah. christians would say it this way and you know you know some buddhists might actually see that this way and, yeah. and muslims would see it this way so we we try to put ourselves in a context in a situation where they start That's to realize cool. we're not the only you know my wife often says like growing up she thought the way they believed was the only way to be christian <laughs> me too yeah <laughs> um, and so it's like allow for that humility of saying yeah. yeah this is you know this is what we think this is our opinion um, based on our experience, but other people believe differently and, and that's okay too. And so giving yeah. people permission to believe differently, mm. um, is, is big for us in terms of that humility. Um, but then the other side of it is, uh, being able to really focus in on the, well, what I would want to say is kind of the hobby of it. Mm. Like, being able to kind of say, well, this is a fun conversation, but it really, you know, it doesn't matter at the end of the day um, <laughs> right. on some of these points. And I think not taking it so seriously, yeah. I think has been a helpful thing for our kids because then we talk about it and then, you know, it's over at the dinner table and then we can talk about it again and they don't leave with this heavy feeling like my soul is dangling over the fire, you know, yeah. by the strand of the, of the spider's web, like Jonathan Edwards, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry <laughs> right. God kind right. of picture. It's, it's a conversation. It's a hobby yeah. um, to talk about a lot of these details. Mm. And, and so I think, yeah, the kind of the humility and then kind of the hobby of it has helped, I think, to frame it differently for our kids. Was it hard for you not to bring that mentality over with you into parenthood? Because obviously, you know, you grew up, you, you know, were into apologetics and all that kind of stuff. Like, did, was it, is that mindset sometimes buried deep in there? Like, do you have to ever fight that off? Has that ever been an issue for you? I feel like it is for me. Like, I feel like I, uh, I feel like rising to the surface every once in a while where like I panic if I don't have, like, she's going to ask me this question. I'm not going to know the answer. But then like to, to your point, to have the humility to say, I'm not sure, you know, but this is how I think of it now. But other people, I think of it, like, it's hard for me to get myself to that point sometimes because that old, I don't know, evangelical soldier voice is still in my head saying you have to have the right answer (laughs) i mean fortunately for me you know can we talk about this deconstruction if for me that's been a 15 year journey at this point yeah sure so it's it's not that old mindset isn't as readily available which is Mm. good it's a really good thing so Um, it it goes quiet it goes a little bit more quiet as time goes on (laughs) (laughs) yeah and you know also (laughs) thinking you know i i was trained in philosophy too so early on like i'm way more about the questions than the answers yeah 
That's I'm, helpful. So I'm always quick to ask questions rather than try to give answers. So that's helpful. So last question for you. Um, this is a big one for me. And that is how do you keep uh, love mattering more when you at the same time feel uh, the need to confront like things like oppression? Like how do you confront oppressive, hateful rhetoric, actions, whatever, in a loving way without losing, I don't know, like your, your prophetic voice, for instance. So for example, and I'll, I'll be real with you. I struggle with this a lot. I said this before we hit record that I wanted to talk to you about something that's really big for me, and this is it. But recently on the podcast, um, I said that I talked to Brian McLaren. We talked about this as well. So I want to get your thoughts. But the other day, I was on Facebook, and a friend of mine who is a transgender shared something in a private group that is reserved for uh, students that went to the same college that we did. And my friend was not identifying as transgender at that point, but has recently come out. And they posted something regarding LGBTQ and someone who is a, a student, but is now a, actually a Bible professor at a different school commented and said something like, you know, all you people need to go to San Francisco with the other gays. It was like totally nasty and totally uncalled for. And the rest of the comments were just as terrible, just as hateful. And since these were directed at my friend, I, of course, <laughs> jumped right in and went toe to toe with this person for a bit. But in that moment, Jared, my, my question is like, I felt no love, very little love. If it was there, it was very little in my heart at the time um, because my friend was being attacked. And I just felt like I needed to like flip over this dude's table and say something. And like, I'm wondering, like in those instances where you see somebody being attacked, whether it's on the internet or God forbid in real life, like what, what, how do you keep all of this stuff in perspective? Like what's, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's one of the central questions that we yeah. have to talk about. So yeah. first of all, I don't at all have the market cornered on the right things to say here, but especially I'll, I'll bracket out the place of anger, you know, righteous yeah. anger, unrighteous yeah. anger. I, I tend to lean on one side of that. I'm totally a, find and respect people on the other side of that. And, yeah. and I don't want to at all dismiss sure. anger as an appropriate response to injustice. Sure. But for me, and I'll just speak from my experience, yeah. it's keeping the perspective of, of humanization where I can attack a system of thought without attacking a person. That's important. Yeah. So I don't, I, I would walk away from any interaction where I felt like I needed to put this person in their place. Like I want them to feel shame yeah. Um, that's not for me. Yeah. That's not approaching this with love. Huh. To to see that they're trapped in a in a hateful and hurtful system, and my job is to liberate them mm. in any way that I can. Right. And people who don't want to be liberated, I don't have to take responsibility for that. But how might I approach this person in such a way that they change their minds mm. about this particular thing? And again, to go back to what I said earlier. My experience simply because I've been in thousands of arguments because I was terrible sure. at this right. has been I've never changed anyone's mind whenever I come to them and hope to shame them and put them in their place. Huh. Um, and so I think there is a way to stand up for people and to fight for justice without demonizing and dehumanizing and shaming the other side. Yeah. And so there's a difference for me between standing up for what we believe and our emotionality or our emotional energy in that situation. Hmm. Um and, and so, you know, in that case, you know, being able to jump in and say, you know, I just, I disagree with you. Mm. I, I think that Jesus loves this person just as much as anyone else. And I think as a society, we need to accept, you know, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, but we can just say, you know, I just disagree. Yeah. I think it's, 
And, and instead of giving all that energy, all that negative energy to that person, I would rather than take that energy and flip it and say, I'm so upset right now. What are some ways I can really make a difference in this arena? Like, mm. what are some organizations I can volunteer for? What calls can I make? What letters can I write? What conversations can I continue to have with people in my community that are going to maybe hear me a little better than this random person I don't know? So mm. how do we redirect that energy into this positive force that's going to make a change? Yeah. Um, not just be critical because some, you know, a-hole is going to spout off some stuff. Yeah. I think that's key. I think like going, uh, I'm thinking about that conversation, how I felt that day. I think like just taking a moment before you hit the keyboard, you know, before you open your mouth, whatever, to just say, I'm, I need to attack the system, not the person. Like I need to attack yeah. the system that this person mm -hmm. is entrenched in. This person has latched onto whatever. It's not the person necessarily. It's the issue. It's the, it's the system that they've bought into or the system that they're aligned with or whatever it is. I think that's, that's really good. I, uh -huh. The only thing I would add though, is this is also an important conversation about boundaries and having yeah. appropriate boundaries, right? So there's people that if you can't engage someone in that kind of way, it's totally <laughs> appropriate to just not engage and say, I can't have a relationship with you. Like I can't, I can't hear you. I can't yeah. listen to you. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's unloving. I think yeah. that's actually the most loving thing you can do for them in that per in that moment. Yeah. As somebody on the show a while back and we were talking about this very thing and a similar kind of instance. And she was saying to me that, you know, before you start the conversation, you almost have to ask yourself, what is my intention in this? And what is the other person's intention in this conversation? Because if the other person's intention is just to be right, but my intention is to actually have a dialogue, it's not going to go anywhere. And if, right. and if, and if I want to just be right, and <laughs> they want to have a dialogue, it's also not going to go anywhere. So it's almost like being able to frame the conversation before you enter into it. It's key. And like you said, if it's, if it's not going to go someplace, it's okay just to say, I'm probably not the person to have this conversation with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that's really important for family members, right? Because sometimes it's hard to set those boundaries, but it's like, Hey, the last time you, the last two times you brought up love matters more, I just felt like you were berating me and attacking me and mm -hmm. we didn't really get anywhere. So if we want to have a dialogue, I'm happy to have that conversation, but yeah. if it's going to turn into that, I'm, I'm going to just politely decline to have yeah. it. Yeah. So, okay. Now this is the last thing. I have one more thing. Last thing. Um, talk to the person listening who they are deconstructing. They're asking all these questions. They're coming out of that world of being right. Uh, they're trying to grapple with this kind of material. They're trying to move to a more, I don't know, progressive, whatever, whatever phrase you want to put on it, liberal, whatever thinking, but they're they don't want to bring with them that need to be right because we can easily go from the, the right to the left and bring that yeah. same, that same exactly. judgmental mindset with us, even though we change your ideas. But like, what's your advice for that person who's really wrestling to become more Christ-like in the way they interact with people? For me, I would say, I can only speak from my experience. It sure. was to take seriously the dictum to know thyself. Hmm. Get to know yourself, not just the positive things, but also those shadows. Like, What's lurking in the closet? Uh, what, what are your fears? What are your insecurities? Because a lot of times that's where we, our fundamentalism will come out from left mm -hmm. or right, whatever. It comes out of a sense of insecurity or yeah. fear. Mm -hmm. So how do we address those and, and start to know ourselves? Not only our shadows, but then also our hopes, our vision. What are our values? What do we value? Um, what's our ethic? What's our principles that we want to live by? Yeah. And the more we can feel confident in that, I found the less fundamental I had to be. 
I, I could let the other things go because I started to know myself. I wasn't defining myself anymore by what I was against, yeah. but I could articulate what I was for. Yeah. Um, so, and I also emphasize that because in a lot of traditions, in my tradition, knowing yourself was like sinful, like that's selfish. Yeah. Don't, don't right. look inward. You could look outward to other people. Right. Um, and I just always love that. I go back to, you know, John Calvin, of course. Um, and in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is like his big, you know, two set uh, systematic theology, he starts mm-hmm. the whole thing, interestingly, by saying, listen, if you want to know God, you have to know yourself. Yeah. And if you want to know yourself, you got to know God. Yeah. And there's this interdependence. And, and I like that. And I think we are anemic on the knowing yourself side of that equation. Yeah. So get to know yourself and don't, don't apologize for it. And don't be ashamed of it to mm-hmm. take some time. You read the Bible probably a million times, but how much have you read yourself? And yes. so take that time and balance that equation. Yeah. And that could require some therapy. I mean, it could require a spiritual Absolutely. director. It could re- And there's no shame in that. It's okay to mm-hmm. say, I need somebody to help me unpack myself a little bit so i can understand yeah yeah absolutely that's really good well jared we're just about i'm out of time but this has been uh, awesome thank you so much for taking the time to uh, drop by maybe we could do this again sometime absolutely yeah i'm always up for good conversation again the more we can talk about this stuff and bring it to light and i think the better Absolutely. And before you go, where can people find you to connect with you? Uh, well, you can find me uh, on my website, jaredbias.com, but also the Bible for normal people.com and then any social media stuff. Um, you just look up Jared Bias and, and you'll find me there. You will pop up. Well, I'll put all the links in the show notes and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks so much. Oh, man. Thanks.
家。